Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Welcome to Green Left Radio Friday Breakfast with me, Jacob and Lali. Lali, they're here. And hope you all are having a warm morning despite the cold out there. It's freezing. Um, so we have another jam-packed program today, Jacob. We're going to start off with discussions about the uh, elections. Guess who won? Uh, <laughs> it, it was, it's interesting because um, we, I heard about it on Sunday um, while I was at a conference that I'll be speaking about later on in the program, but it was almost like a non-event. Like, I know. It's sad, it, isn't it? It, it was... It was a depressing result, but I was like, okay. When I heard the news, I was like, okay. So for listeners who've possibly been under a rock, the coalition has won, has been officially declared the winner. They've 77 won the seats, yeah. Um, though, they, though the fact that it took, you know, this long to, you know, um, declare the result is actually telling that there's some, there might be some kind of shift because at least one third of voters actually voted for a minor party or, you know, a party mm. that's not um, the coalition or the Labour the, the Party, Labor party um, indicating a sort of dissatisfaction with, you know, the status quo. I, but I guess, you know, unfortunately that dissatisfaction with the status quo is leading in another direction of, um, say, people like Pauline Hanson um, getting elected. And Xenophon. Um, who's... That, oh, Nick Xenophone. Oh, Nick Xenophone, well, I don't really have much... He's not as... Possibly not as bad as... Um, as Paul and Hanson. But, but he's... They all... You know, not Hanson's the extreme. She's, she's an aberration in a sense. But Xenophone is very much as a Liberal Party person. The two people, I think, who won seats with him were either ex... Um, even even McGovern, you know, used to be in the Liberal Party. So they sort of that flavour is very Liberal Party flavour. Yeah. The people know. Well, groups. Nick Xenophone's party positions himself as in between Labour and Liberal, and I'm not so sure. There's not that much space there, I can tell you. Yeah, exactly, because <laughs> there's not really any kind of particular meaningful differences um, between both parties. Um, in the in the case of Pauline Hanson, Pauline Hanson is you know promoting kind of a sort of anti sort of Islamic Islam kind of um, gender. She's also she's also for many um, listeners that may not know she's also um, very anti feminist um, despite the fa- um, despite being a woman. She's um, on the record of campaigning for like you know on campaign on behalf of men's rights. That's right. Of. Yeah. Um, associated with that kind of particular moon, all the, about this thing about, you know, changing the rules for, you know, custody, um, that would actually disproportionately make women worse off, or in the sort of interests of, you know, defending men, 
Um, she's been quoted as saying things like, you know, that women make frivolous domestic violence claims to hurt men, and That's that, right. and it's, which is completely appalling. And the funny part is, 95% of people who separate separate with a no court, court in court, court involvement. Excuse me. Um, only 5% go to the courts, and what you have is uh, Pauline Hanson has been quoted by the men's movement like the FLRC which is a family law um, reform coalition and another organization called the SPCA which is Shared Parenting Council of Australia and the problem is that uh, she thinks she's found a niche to be relevant and to be heard um, and unfortunately the things she's talking about are so anti-feminist that it's taking the history of women's liberation back like half a decade, not half a decade, five decades really. So she's saying that in, in, as, as well as um, frivolous, uh, accusing women of making frivolous complaints about domestic violence, she also says that men have nowhere to go where there's domestic violence. And there's, you know, 0.0001% of men who suffer violence from women. It's men who are usually the perpetrators. Mm. And the fact that uh, the batty boy died uh, because of violence, because of the 50-50 shared parenting arrangement, is clear. And the fact is, the, 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 because I work in the industry, I know that they don't check men uh, properly for the history of violence. Even if they have violence, even if they go to jail, they have still access to the child. They expect the mother to take the child and go hike all the way to the prisons and give access to the father. Mm. So there's, there's no cohesive um, program to... You ready there, Dennis? <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Apologies, <laughs> for the, apologies for the late arrival. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about um, Pauline Hanson. And the yes, other side yes, of it, you know, not just that she, she's not just a racist. Uh, she's an anti- yes. She's, she's terrible. A, she's, a, yeah, she's a misogynist, very much. Very much so. That's putting it concisely in one word. But the details are, it's just frightening to listen to this woman speak about um, how she supports men, and mm. that's what she's going to be going to Parliament and talk about. It's, it's, it's absolutely terrifying to listen to a woman lead up men's rights in Parliament. Yeah. So it looks like women's liberation has a lot of work to do there. But people don't realize that that side to Pauline Hanson. But anyway, that's one, one of the problems, one of the issues. We're talking about the election results, Dennis, and maybe you want to chip well, in and say I just want to just bring up, um, just before we move away from the subject of Paul and Hanson, Mayor Sanders, um, in the latest Green Left Weekly, actually wrote an article about that, you know, um, titled, you know, we need a new movement, you know, to push Hanson back. Um, you know, we need to actually start, you know, the left actually needs to sort of start collectively getting organised. Um, and... Um, in this article, Mia points to the examples in the 90s when Pauline Hanson was elected that um, um, resistance um, played quite a large role in actually organising a lot of strong counter-mobilisations mm. mm-hmm. um, against Pauline Hanson um, to the point where Pauline Hanson singled out resistance as the one unsavoury um, group um, because in 1996, when Hanson was first elected to Parliament, um, resistance... High school students who were members of resistance um, organised a series of um, of a protests, um, which should like include you know high school walkouts, um, and there was also uh, there was also I think a a, a, a protest in 1997 where uh, a 3,000 strong protest um, 
was organised outside a One Nation meeting in Newcastle. And, you know, you know, a serious, you know, uh, this serious kind of left response, you know, Mia says, also requires us to build movements that welcome refugees and treat them with dignity. It requires us to build bridges with our Muslim bro- sisters and brothers. It requires us to work harder and enrol in our unions, our campuses and our higher schools, you know, so we can collectively, you know, come together to defeat this sort of racist challenge and as and pointing to, you know, the historical cases of how resistance played this sort of major role in, you know, organising these protests against um, Pauline Hansen and collective action. I think that um, uh, sort of uh, taking the lesson of that and putting it into the uh, modern pers- perspective, I think that uh, we also have an opportunity, we have also have a great opportunity to build on the existing anti-fascist uh, you know, organisation and work that has been conducted the last couple of years against to reclaim Australia, against reclaim Australia, against UPF and against others. Yeah. I, I feel like we've actually, what we, we've really sort of been seeing this, uh, the construction of uh, what do you call a united, almost like a united front uh, against uh, fascism, with. Uh, with uh, some, with in, in a lot of cases, with the counter demonstrations against fascists, including, yeah, including, uh, uh, including, so, including so, socialists, community groups, um, yeah, uh, anarchists, yeah. Uh, trade unions. The broader the movement, the better. Exactly. That's what it exactly. is. Yeah, of course, of course, uh, some, uh, of course, uh, some some groups have uh, different uh, tactics uh, than others, but what I, I feel like what we what we've seen is that we've seen we've finally seen. Um, uh, the, the left and, le- and um, the organised um, left really, really tackling this uh, the issue of fascism and racism head on, mm. even uh, you know even before we actually I, I think most of us actually di- we didn't know Hanson no. would make any, any comeback like that. So this um, that's what happens when you call double dissolution yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and expect you know that you're going to get rid of minor parties and what he's got he's went down I think he had a 19 seat majority and now it's gone down to two yes yes. so he's learned a very bitter lesson that's true that's true but the other issue that, that didn't come out as clearly in the um, election campaign was the ABCC mm. and that's a uh, bit of a concern because that oh, that was the whole reason for exactly for it was a trigger exactly and yet um, throughout the election campaign nobody really talked about it um, as an important issue or the prime issue as to why the elections are being held. Um, and now, I think, hopefully, uh, Turnbull's got the message that the public don't buy the, that sort of measures anymore, mm, whether, mm. whether whether the, the minor parties, you know, featured prominently and majority of them were actually more right to the Liberal Party, like Hansen. I mean, Xenophon, I, um, I think, is very much in line with the Liberal Party. Um, there's nothing left about Xenophon. Not or do you think Dennis? No, no, no. <laughs> well, he's, he, did, he, he has always voted against uh, the ABCC. That's in, in Consistently, in, in the yeah, Senate, and also against uh, rise in tuition fees or against uh, privatization of higher education. To my, yes. In my... So I'm so he's uh, at best he's an unreliable centrist. Yeah, I, I get all confused by all these labels. You know, I was asking um, Jacob before, what does this mean? You know, identity politics, and you know, you're just unnecessarily confused 
people's little brains. But but on Xenophon, one other, one other thing he's good at is he's actually teaming up with Wilkie to fight yes. this gambling stuff and, and yeah. advertising of, of gambling during yeah. sports events, which is, which is good. So on individual issues, he comes out to the left of the Liberal Party, oh, yeah. or even the Labour Party for that matter. Yes, yes. And, so um, maybe that's like a reflection of, you know, how far, you know, right would... Oh, Australian politics, yeah, because I think that the other senator, uh, Jackie Lambie, actually had very similar positions on tuition fees and ABCC and free trade agreements, and but we all know her position on uh, uh, on on Muslims and other minorities in the country, exactly refugees, yes, yes. yes. And she she wanted to put um, what do you call them? Those those tracing bracelets on on Syrians who came here, exactly. Uh, It's unbelievable. But anyway, Jacob, you don't I think, so. I think one sort of question that sort of has to be raised is, you know, um, with the ABCC, how it, the fact that it was not mentioned at all, really, I think in the article written in the latest Green Left Weekly about the ABC by Jim McCoy, um, the APC, ABCC was apparently only mentioned four times throughout <laughs> the election campaign. Yes. Um, I think it's... It sort of says something, there's a bit of an interesting um, thing here coming here because the construction union itself is constantly vilified, um, you know, in in the hell scum, you know, or the mainstream media. They're, you know, they're portrayed as, you know, thugs. And, but a lot of the things with the ABC would actually sort of indicate almost like sort of like a violation of civil liberties. And if they were that honest about, you know, the ABCC, you know, if they kept mentioning it, you know, the, gradually people would actually, you know, wonder, what is the ABCC? And I don't think, actually, uh, the majority of people would be actually be comfortable with what the <laughs> ABCC actually means Jeez, and yeah. what it means mm-hmm. for workers. Um, and the only the only way they can sort of take it in is through this propaganda where they don't mention the ABCC at all and just instead portray the construction workers as, you know, a bunch of... You know, thugs who are, you know... What I don't understand is, you know, the, the lack of discussion around the, this thing. There's this notion of nanny state that's floated around, and they don't want the state to intervene in business. But how come the state can intervene in union affairs? Hmm. Nobody seems to uh, to look at the other side of the equation and say, well, you know, you, you don't want the state telling you what to do, but how come you allow and you support the state um, in demanding that unions behave in a particular manner. I mean, so if you want to talk about corruption, do the whole bloody lot. Do the bankers, do the parliamentarians, and see mm-hmm. how far you get. Malcolm Turnbull came to power, and within a, a few months, he gave himself a 10% wage rise. Mm-hmm. He didn't go to the Fair, Works, mm-hmm. Fair Work Commission to, to mm-hmm. prove that he was producing, or his productivity had increased by 10%, but he got his 10%. Mm-hmm. So how does that, you know, fare in, in terms of just or justifying a wage rise, if, if every worker did that in a country, he wouldn't be very happy about that. But how come he can do it? Yeah. That's one of the, um, I suppose, you know, central contradictions of um, neoliberalism, which, you know, neoliberalism is like this sort of economic kind of agenda, which is, you know, prioritises, you know, free trade, um, privatisation of, you know, public services. Um, because, you know, ideologically, a lot of these politicians who, you know, follow this line of politics are always up um, about, you know, we don't want any interference in the government. We want free individual freedom for everyone. But in reality, they don't actually follow that because, you know, um, the reality that happens is that, you know, mining companies get subsidies. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. they, don't want, they don't want government intervention. Don't subsidise companies. Um, they're not actually willing to go as far as head by actually taking away, you know, the state. 
Mm. They're not. They're not. They don't want. They're not that wounded because they're only. They're basically hypocrites. They they only want state intervention when it benefits. You know the financial interests of you know the corporations and the bosses. And the one percent. It's always a subsidy to the one percent. When it comes to subsidizing the ninety-nine percent, there's always this hoo-ha about oh, it costs too much money and there are lots of cheats and blah blah blah. And, and there are multiple studies done to say that if there's anyone uh, supposedly deceiving the system, it's less than five percent in the Centrelink area. And the people who are actually receiving the, deceiving the taxpayers are the large corporations in conjunction with the government, mm. which gives out welfare to the rich. You know, it's just ridiculous. We're still paying royalties to the royal family for whatever we have in this country. Why? There's, there's so much subsidy given to the 1% that it's nauseating to even sit here and list all of the, the things that they're they giving subsidies to for that belongs to the rich people. If you've just tuned in, this is Tricia, and you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. In the session, we have Dennis, Jacob, and Lalita. Alright, so um, just before that announcement um, was made, I was going to talk about where I was actually last weekend. Yes, that was interesting. Yeah, where were you last weekend? <laughs> what were you doing? Um, so um, I'll, keep, I'll give a report back. Um, I, be- I went to uh, uh, environmental um, conf- uh, a conference for um, for you know young people. Really, oh, not, isn't it's, it? it's for all people. Yeah, okay, but, but it's called the um, conference. It happens every year, and it's um, organised by Australian Students Environmental Network, or Australian Students, or ASEN, A S E N. I might be getting sort of the words in that, but that's, that's the acronym. Okay. Um, they organise they organise a student and uh, their annual Students of Sustainability Conference um, this year. Um, this time it was in Brisbane. Um, I, I had the privilege of um, attending it um, and why I was not present last Friday. <laughs> um, it's, it's, hap- it's been happening actually since, um, from my understanding, since the 80s or 90s, but essentially it's like a conference um, um, that, you know, brings a lot of sort of environmental um, activists, um, especially in universities, it brings a lot of... Um, uh, has um, it's, it's done in consultation with the Aboriginal community. Um, this time it was in Mosgrave Park, which is like a sort of um, area for Aboriginal um, for the Aboriginal community. And um, had like we had like the like workshops on like all sorts of different topics. There's a lot of sort of um, you know practical things about you know things about permaculture and that. But there's actually a, a political. There's actually a lot of sort of political co- um, workshops. For example, there was a workshop on you know. Um, Marxist ecology, how um, divestment campaigns um, against nuclear, um, and there also there was also sort of a lot of lots of things on renewable energy sort of projects. You know, it was it's a conference that is a way of like you know getting lots of sort of environmental activists involved in the movement sort of together. You know, to yeah, discuss. Yeah. Um, and how to many people were there at the conference altogether? Uh, at least two hundred to two hundred fifty. Um, though it's probably one of the smaller turnouts. Um, there's actually. I think there's been conferences where at least 300 to 400 have actually turned up. But overall, it was, um, it was a great sort of conference that had, um, it's one of the sort of few, you know, student conferences that has, um, that's very accessible, has a lot of, you know, it's not, it's not that prohibitive in terms of cost. Uh, I mean, it costs like $110, you know, for, and that includes meals and everything. Right. Um, you get to keep, uh, and, um, next year we'll probably, I've heard, um, from that it's going to be in Newcastle, and it's usually in, um, the winter holidays. 
um, the winter school holidays, so definitely um, watch Grace, and there'll be a full um, write-up on the whole conference in the latest Green Left Weekly. Oh, next week's Green Left Weekly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I'll say it was definitely a very enjoyable conference. There was I met we, it was a good way to network with lots of different sort of activists in the movements. Um, and and compared to last year, I would actually say my own personal opinion, there was a much um, stronger anti-capitalist current running through the conference. That's good to hear. Um, I remember last year I found that the po- um, the politics of the conference to be a bit interesting in a sense that you know they, there was a lot of talk about you know all these problems of capitalism and you know inequality and environmental discussion, destruction. Yet last year it seemed a lot of the participants or even a lot of the speakers refused to use the C word, um, like mm. the word capitalism, whereas this year it was much more apparent that there's been a political shift and actual you know, people's consciousness are changing, which is actually very interesting to I, see. I think, uh, I, think, I think Naomi Klein's book might have had something to do yes. with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, they actually, yeah, they were actually using the, word, the C word. And actually, in a, fu- a funny anecdote um, on Naomi Klein, um, there was a work. I went to a workshop on radicalising the big environmental NGOs um, because there's a particular critique of NGOs playing too dominant a role in the environment movement. And someone um, brought up <laughs> that you know I, we should get the, we should get we should um, start reading circles of Naomi Klein's latest book with NGOs <laughs> to to, to radicalise them from within. Not sure, not sure particularly if that's um, relevant, but it's an interesting idea. Um, and yeah. so you, you they want to organise reading groups to what to um, with NGO environmental big NGO, environmental NGOs to sort of raise raise sort of anti-capitalist consciousness in from within the from within the, from within those spaces. So NGOs are positive or negative? I don't get it. Ah, uh, it was it was in the, it was just a random contribution in a, in the discussion about how we can radicalise environmental NGOs because the premise is. Of that discussion was that NGOs play a contradictory role in that. Um, I agree. And it's also rested on the premise that, well, um, which I found really good. That discussion in that workshop was all rested on the premise that we're all anti-capitalists. Um, sort of, mm. So, which was yeah, and they met as I said, very overt sort of use of the C word, which I loved, and um, it shows a sort of development and shift in consciousness um, in and that particular movement. And what about, and also some photos that um, the, uh, at the conference, that there was, a, I think there was a, either a motion passed or there was a bit of an action in support of the uh, YPG in support of the Kurdish uh, oh, liberation yes, there, struggle? There was a, there was a um, session uh, which I was fortunately unable to go to because um, I think I went to something else at the time, but yeah, there was a session on the Kurdish feminist revolution, mm. um, um, it which, is also, which is also eco, e- eco, eco social mm. yeah, yeah. ecologist. Um, but um, that, there wasn't actually a particular motion put forward because in SRS is not a conference. Um, one of the limitations of the conference is it doesn't um, it doesn't serve as particularly a, plat- a political. It doesn't have a, pl- a political platform which by which you can actually put forward sort of motions and support. So what you what you probably saw on social media was actually a photo shoot that was initiated by some ind- um, individual attendees of the conference. You can't act. There's not really a sort of collective organised sort of way of you know putting forward. Unlike say um, the National Union of Students conferences, where they discuss motions, they put forward motions, and they put forward positions that um, make political kind of. It was good that that issue was discussed and brought to the fore. It's important to recognise that the women in um, Rojava who are doing progressive things in relation to climate change despite Mm. the war-filled environment they are coping with. From what I heard from from 
um, people I know who went to that session, it was actually one of the best attended ones too, over 30 to 40 people. So people are really dying to sort of hear about these issues. Um, actually, a lot of the sort of um, sessions I went to um, that relate to some kind of uh, anti-capitalist sentiment actually got, from my anecdotal experience, they had some of the best um, attendance. And there was even a, a session, a very packed session on discussion about, you know, tactics, which um, wasn't um, a particularly, wasn't rested on an anti-capitalist sentiment, but it was actually... Um, there was a very sort of interesting discussion about you know different tactics, and it wasn't mm-hmm. there wasn't any sort of particular condemnation of say you know um, it was um, condemnation of sort of you know those so-called violent tactics from the left like direct action um, coal um, blockades, and it was actually a very fruitful discussion on how we can use tactics to politically advance a goal. Okay, moving on. Yep. Before the next uh, station, I.e., what else is in the papers that we should talk about? And any election issues that you guys want to bring for, bring up? Well, housing was not discussed at all, actually, in, in, in the uh, throughout throughout the election. Uh-huh. It's not. It's it's another thing. Um, I think uh, it was important to mention. I think I think sort of all, uh, throughout the last uh, few shows, I think we also mentioned uh, that over and uh, we, I think I think we've also we've also started to see a rise of uh, you know of uh, community of community of public housing action groups and uh, collectives uh, in places like Melbourne and Sydney because in, in Melbourne this has been centered around uh, the Bendigo Street occupation of. Uh, of homes, and over in Sydney, it's the uh, the anti-West Connex uh, group, yep. which is uh, sort of focuses on the prevention of the building of toll and the and, you know the demolition of uh, public housing that's uh, surround that uh, surrounds it. But it was yeah, it was incredible to see that you know issue of housing and homelessness were never merged. It, it, the housing well, issue was brought up by yeah, the Greens, but, but, but it was in relation to how people can't buy their first yes first homes. Negative uh, and negative, negative gearing. Oh, so I'll, it, I'll just it, be, I'll say that actually the Greens policy was actually a bit. Um, that was actually the Labor policy. Actually, I think the Greens policy was actually was actually about the question. No, of no we're not talking about policy. We're talking about what was actually discussed in the oh, public yeah. arena. You know, yeah. every all the parties have all these wonderful policies. They never talk about that. In terms of actual discussion, the more urgent one is the homeless issue, mm. where people are, at least from, from my point of view, you know, people are, you, you know, I, I've been here 35 years in Melbourne, and I find that there's a hell of a lot more people sleeping on the streets. And this issue is not just about those people you see in Swanson Street and under the bridge in, in, in you know, and, uh, in uh, Docklands. It's more about the people that, the hidden, unempl- uh, the homeless who are couch surfing who are, you know, living from place to place to place. And, and, and this goes on. But the, for me, the most um, telling thing is that um, the list of people who are waiting for a public housing, 33,000, then you've got mm-hmm. at any one night 20-odd thousand people who don't have a place to sleep in. It's just atrocious, and that's what you're talking about, Dennis. But mm-hmm. it, yesterday I attended a forum, and... Um, they had, and they, they had a, a session by this this uh, specialist from the children's hospital, and I was actually astounded to learn that rheumatic heart disease is more prevalent 
where there is crowded, uh, the crowded housing or homeless people because of the, the, the organism it lives in um, your throat mm. and it spreads to your heart. But the problem is if you live in a crowded home, your chances of, of getting the rheumatic heart disease is much, much, much higher. Like among the, the Pacific population, the Aboriginal community, and the um, Maori community in New Zealand, it's much higher than the white community. So they are looking, in New Zealand, they have committed $63 million to housing so that they can prevent rheumatic heart disease because the uh, incidence is like um, 15, 20 times higher among those populations compared to the white population. So I was like, oh my goodness, housing, we knew that housing was a social determinant of health. And it's, um, it was a shock to me to, to see that. <laughs> Give him the key. <laughs> Sorry, there's a bit of kerfuffle going on in the station here. And, uh, and, no, and no. That's, that's telling. Diseases spread faster where there's overcrowding. It, this is the old notion. You know, in the days mm, when you mm. put public health measures and what, in the old days was water. And housing is a primary issue today, and you're absolutely right. It was not discussed well enough. It's the, the, the problem is the way it was discussed as, a, as if it was discussed in terms of... For you know, some buyers. In terms of, well, in terms of, in terms of you know, if, if it being a commodity or a, yep. a commodity investments or, you know, something... Not quite, not, not, not quite, not uh, considered to be that important. Mm. So it's a yeah. human right, as simple as that. Mm. Anyway, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR, Green Left Radio, and we have in the studio Jacob, Dennis, and Lalita, and we have um, Ditson. Yeah, we have Steve um, Diston. Um, an interview with Steve Diston. Um, he's an um, organizer for the ETU. Um, he's currently involved in um, a dispute. Um, um, on June 10th, um, over 50, um, 50 Carlton and United Brewery workers were told without prior notice that they were terminated. Um, you know, the workers were then were then invited to reapply for their jobs to a company called Catalyst Recruitment. Um, basically, they they um, they would be they were asked to reapply for for the jobs that they had for a 65% pay cut. And as a result, they're now involved in an industrial action to, you know, get their jobs back at full pay. And Steve Diston is one of the organisers for that and work. Okay. Steve's on, online. Yep. Morning, Steve. Morning. G'day, mate. How are you going? Good. Thank you so much for being available this time of the morning. And we're keen to hear more about the dispute. Do you want to tell us what happened? All right. No worries. Well, um, there's a bit of background just to sort of frame this dispute. We have um, a big multinational brewer called Saab Miller who owns CUB. And uh, with billions of dollars of turnovers, they somehow managed to pay no tax that they can afford to pay their CEO. Surprise, surprise, yes. (laughs) This year he's in for um, a $62 million bonus. So you've got to ask yourself where that money comes from if they're at the same time as a coincidence. They're dipping their hands in the pockets of working-class people, uh, you know, who actually make their beer. But um, it's a big multinational. They don't pay tax, so they're not contributing to our society in any sort of meaningful way. And um, to top it off, they're attacking Australian workers, and they've um, put in place through contractors, you know, and it is all CUB. 
There's been a little bit of um, talk out there that, oh, you know, it's not CUB, they're not direct employees at CUB. CUB have engaged these contractors on the terms that CUB wish for it to be done. And if CUB wasn't happy with what was happening, they would terminate any contracts. So um, they've bust in scabs from interstate. Um, we've flown over scabs from West Australia and New South Wales because they're having trouble finding um, Victorians to do these jobs to scab while uh, these blokes are out the front because Victorians seem to be made a bit... Uh, bit better stuff than some of our brothers and sisters from the yes. uh, state. Yeah, it is the home of unionism, I suppose. Yes, Victoria. it is. Yeah. And also, and also, and also, I guess we're talking, we're talking about skilled jobs here as well. This, this is why it's hard for them to, to actually find, uh, fi- you know, find that many, that many scabs from one particular place. Oh well, they just can't. They don't have the skill set required. These, mm-hmm. these, these electricians here. These guys do a five-year apprenticeship. So you know, the, the normal apprenticeship is four years for an electrician. These guys do a five-year apprenticeship because they're a dual trade. So they're not only are they electricians, they're instrumentationists, and they are very highly skilled. And all you have to do, if you have any doubts about the skill of these workers, is come down to this factory and you can see the amount of beer coming out of here in comparison with before the dispute, and um, the numbers speak for themselves. The production has just fallen by more than 50%. So um, there's breakdowns everywhere and they just can't fix this stuff. And there's 906 years of combined experience in this workforce sitting out the front here, ready, willing and available to do the work. All they ask is that they're treated with the same dignity as 10,000 other electricians on the same agreement that they were on at the start of this dispute and not have an agreement from Western Australia imposed upon them. And let me just clarify one issue. There aren't migrant workers who are brought in to take cheap labour, are they? The SCAB workforce? Yes. No, no. Oh, well, it's a time of high unemployment and, um, you know, there's plenty of people looking for work, but it, it seems like these people, are, they've just got anyone who will actually do the work. Um, they're not, they don't have the skill set to record, um, complete the work, but they're here basically um, just to provoke this workforce here so they can get a court order on us and um, get us taken away from the front of the workforce because they don't like us here. We're down their headquarters constantly and um, we're making sure that they hear our voices. And this isn't, you know, one of the third world backwaters that they're used to doing this sort of behaviour in all the time, these big multinationals. This is a third world country, Mm. democracy. Mm. We have the right to protest and the right to speak out, and and we will do so. And the right to strike. Um, One interesting question that this um, um, brings up is, you know, um, a legal question um, I have is, you know, how how is... is Carlton and United Brewery actually able to sort of get away with, you know, sacking mm-hmm. workers and then offering them, um, basically re-offering them their jobs, offering them to reapply for their jobs at a 65% pay cut? How is this, you know, legal and how are they able to get away with it? Uh, the beauty of the Fair Work Act and all its loopholes. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, yeah, I don't exactly want to write a how-to guide for all the bad bosses out there, but um, just to put it in simple terms, if you um, use, and it, and it started in the 90s, I suppose, widespread use of outsourcing workforces, and it's, you know, it is a, it's a sham. It's They outsource a workforce, and then the um, actual client can claim it's not them as the employer. So you have a, you know, a distant, you have a middleman in between the employment relationship, and then you can change them willy-nilly like your socks. And um, this is one of the, the worst things about the Fair Work Act. An agreement, when you... Um, negotiate an agreement. At the end of the negotiation, an agreement's put out and the workers vote on the outcome. But one of the loopholes in the Fair Work Act is that you can impose an agreement that's previously been voted on onto a workforce. You hire 
say you've had three people in a uh, workshop somewhere do an agreement, um, you know, and that could be, you know, with threatening visas or whatever it might be, you get a very, very, very poor agreement up and then you can hire an extra 100 people and have them taken under the terms of that agreement and that agreement might be in place for the next, you know, four years is the longest term under the Fair Work Act. So we see this and it takes the democracy out of um, out of actually getting an agreement up, which is, you know, we're a democratic society, we're supposed to have democracy in all aspects of our, our lives and your working life is, you know, 30% of your time. So... Yeah, it, it, they basically just took the democracy out of these guys. These guys had no say, no input, and um, this agreement's just been imposed upon them. And the ETU is a state union, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, we're the Victorian branch of the ETU, um, nationally with CPU. And what's the political stuff behind this, that's, if any? It's, 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 it's a state government saying anything? Because it's such an atrocious situation for workers to be in. Well, and we have had a couple of things. We had Adam Bant yesterday from the Greens. Um, come and speak at the rally at the headquarters. So every um, every Thursday at, at 12 o'clock we've been rallying at the headquarters of CUB and in South Bank and we had Adam Bant there yesterday and he called upon Malcolm Turnbull um, to speak out about this injustice and, and he was speaking about how, you know, in this day and age it's possible for big multinationals to behave in this manner and how we should have laws in place to stop that. And, um, I mean, we just had Michaelia Cash, I think it was last week or the week before, speaking out and saying that, you know, there's a big worry for the merger of the CFMEU and the NUA. They're saying it should pass the public interest test because two large unions with economic resources is worried to the public, where at the same time we've just had this beer company here, Saab Miller, merge with InBev, um, to the two biggest brewers in the world, and it was over a $100 billion deal. And now 90% of the beer market is um, run by one company. And speaking of, as, 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 as speaking of uh, sort of different uh, unions cooperating, uh, the uh, Manufacturing Workers Union is also, is also sorry, the, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union has also um, uh, been part of the dispute, from what I understand. There are also members and organisers uh, on the ground. How is the, the cooperation, how has the joint work been uh, going with those fantastic. comrades? Absolutely fantastic. I can't speak highly enough about our brothers in the Metal Workers Union, and um, we're sitting on, on down here at the picket line at the moment, just inside the car. Um, but yeah, we're all just, we're just, it's brought us closer together than ever, you know. Um, their organiser, um, Rochi, is fantastic. You know, we've had good backing from the metal workers on a national level as well. They've got a fantastic PR department. They've been um, giving it to all the CUV products on Facebook, which has been fantastic. But no, the, the metal workers in the ETU, we do have a strong bond um, across many workplaces because we're often in the same agreement and we're a maintenance just due to our trades, fitters and electricians usually work together pretty side by side. And um, tell you what, if these folks weren't really good mates before this dispute, they're like brothers now when you look at them together on this picket line. And their resolve just gets harder every day and their bond gets closer every day. And um, Yeah, I, I, I can't see these guys breaking or losing. They're just, they're just getting bigger and stronger every day. And what's the role of the Victorian Trades Hall in this dispute at the moment, Steve? Okay, so this, um, this was happened that this dispute broke out about two weeks before the federal election. So yes. This is the, fifth, the fifth week that we've been going, and Trades Hall was tied up in the election yep. campaigning um, leading up to the dispute. But um, since then, we've had Luke Hilakari come down a couple of times. He actually brought down scarves for us, um, which was pretty handy. <laughs> it's <laughs> gold, yes. The exactly. other morning. Yes. But, um, yeah, I think there's been a bit of work and cooperation behind the scenes um, with Trades Hall coordinating between our unions and our secretaries. And I, I think as this dispute ramps up and it is getting bigger and bigger, we had the front page of the age this week. and um, oh, that's good. Online last night. So as this gets bigger and bigger, I think um, Trades Hall is probably going to kick it up a few notches. 
I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see um, tens of thousands of workers, you know, uh, start to mobilise in the streets if this continues on much longer. Well, you need to. Yeah, and, and Steve, I think I might, I might, have, might have come up with a good... Uh, uh, with, with another good sort of uh, phrase for the dispute, you know, Victorian Trade Hall Council helping out. How, how, how's this? Scarves, not scabs. <laughs> it's a good slogan. Yeah, scarves from the unions, no scabs from uh, from the bosses. <laughs> okay, and um, ACTU on board yet? Um, yeah, the ACTU were in contact last night. Um, one of our blokes, he spoke at the rally yesterday. He spoke really well, and he, you know, it, it's important that. People see that the people in this dispute are just family men. They're just people like, you know, you and I. They're just normal blokes. Yep. And one of our fellows, the, which is a scary thing to do to speak up, you know, against your employer and a big multinational and, and one who's pretty vindictive at that. And he spoke out yesterday and the ACTU got in touch and said, look, um, can we use his, you know, his photos and his words because it's pretty powerful stuff. Can we use him? So it looks like the ACTU is starting to get involved and um, ramping up as well, which would be fantastic. Hmm. The key thing is, I mean, having been involved in a few strikes myself, it's the the state of the workers. It must be hard. You've been out for five weeks now. It's it's no joke, and you don't have an income. How are the workers um, bearing up to this situation at the moment? Well, we recently just had a um, shop stewards conference where we had hundreds hundreds of our shop stewards. Um, we have one every two years. Um, right in the, I think it was during the third week of this dispute, and we passed a resolution that if this dispute goes one day over five weeks, then we'll be putting a $20 levy across all of our membership in many workplaces if we can get it. Now, if everyone pays, that's $400,000 a week. Now, I don't anticipate that we'll get every single one of our members paying. There'll be some workforces just due to the, you know, the nature of logistics, etc. That would be an impossibility, I'd imagine. But um, I think you'll find that we are able to look after these guys financially. Um, you know, from next week when this levy gets going, I think, I think there are, there's no worries about them being starved back to work. Let's put it that way. Mm. That's usually the biggest um, worry about workers being forced back to work because of family commitments and so on. It's really hard to pay the bills, especially yeah. these days. We've, we've had some great financial contributions from other unions. The MUA in um, West Australia donated ten thousand dollars. Right. Um, I had a phone call last night from our South Australian branch that donated thousands of dollars and a uh, slab of coopers for each of the blokes. We had a brewer, a local brewer called um, Brew Brewery. They came down last night and dropped off um, 54 slabs, one for each of the lads. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> you know, so, uh, <laughs> Very important supply. <laughs> yeah, well, they've given us the flags. And then, so I, I don't think there's a problem with supporting you know, good Australian brewers. There's plenty out there, and you don't necessarily have to go with this behemoth, this big multinational that now is cornered 90% of the beer market. There's other options, and we'll be um, having talks with Coopers, who's a um, Australian made and they've got union agreements in there and they look after their workers. They're going to start um, some talks with Coopers, see if we can um, build some bridges and, and um, work together on this and, and show you know the Australian public there are other choices out there with more um, at the bottle and um, some more ethical choices during this sort of a thing. Mm. So just, just to remind um, um, listeners, who are the owners of this brewery at the moment? Okay, so we have a South African company called Saab Miller who owns CUB. Now, they've just taken part in a merger with InBev, a massive, big, huge company, just like Saab Miller. And now we've got a... Well, where are they from? Um, American off the top of my head. They've got a funny name that's got a bit of German in it, but you know how all these multinationals are? Yep. They put their headquarters mm-hmm. in all sorts of places. That's and right. They um, the best tax jurisdictions they can possibly find. And, but, um, yeah, there's a massive conglomerate now, so it's, um, it's huge, 90% of the beer market, they reckon. 
Mm. So they're, they're foreign companies. For me, you know, the, the interesting thing is, given the, the looming TPP agreement, I'm wondering if these guys are actually pushing the limits to see how they can reduce uh, workers' wages. And ETU has been a very strong union historically. Um, what, what do you think is, is the background of this? That's a massive wage reduction. I mean, this is totally, totally atrocious, beyond imagination. 65% wage drop is... There's no precedence for this sort of um, reduction in wages. Where do you think this this push is coming from, if if at all? Okay, well, they didn't do their homework before they pulled this on for starters. We've we've got a history book that you can um, get about the ETU, and it runs over about the last 112 years, which is, um, we've been around for 114 years. It goes through our our 114-year history, and it goes through some of our disputes, and it goes through some of the disputes, you know, it went for eight months and all the rest of it. And I don't think the company did its homework on Victoria... Um, Melbourne unions and especially not the ETU. And mm. they've, they've sent in this um, industrial toe cutter. We've coined him the um, Lord High Executioner down here. He's um, from Saab Miller and apparently he goes around his job is to go from brewery to brewery and either shut them down or gut their workforce and um, try and squeeze every last dollar out of it. A bloke by the name of Gary Woodburn. Mm. And um, he's their toe cutter and um, he's come and he has no understanding of this community. He has no understanding of this workforce. And uh, I think before he threw out 906 years of combined service out into the street, I don't think he realised what these guys actually do. Yeah, <laughs> that should be the case, stuff. isn't it? But, but yeah, I think the agenda is. There's, there's been talk that um, potentially they want to put CUB itself on the Australian stock market and they're going to gut it before they do that to try and um, make it better priced. But, you know, it, it's no one saw this attack coming. And this is the point I made at the rally yesterday. You know, we have over 600 companies in Victoria that covers about 10,000 electricians all on the same agreement. And these boys are on that agreement. And we're saying that, you know, they are no different to all these other sparkies. You know, they don't deserve $1 less. And that's why we're saying this isn't just an attack on the workers at the Abbotsford Brewery. This goes a lot further. This attacks those other 10,000 electricians that are on the same agreement. It goes further than that. It attacks our whole industry and our community, the living standards of Australian workers. This is a big dispute. It is. And, it, and it's very important that we do get people understanding the ramifications if this company is able to pull this off. I think, I think it's broader than the ETU, personally speaking, because if they can do this to one of the strongest unions and in Victoria, which has a very strong labour history, they can do it to anybody else. That's what the biggest fear, at least from what I'm thinking, if they can beat the ETU... It's like how they destroyed the BLF in the 90s, you know. It's, it's got that flavor to it. Uh, but as you say, it could be a certain naivety, but it could be seen as something that the Liberal Party want to promote as well because if they can, you know, destroy a strong union, it's to their advantage. Well, good luck to them. It's cost them <laughs> millions of dollars so far, and I'll tell you, we're at week five, and the grand final's coming up. Spring racing carnival's on the horizon. I'll tell you what, they've already lost millions now. If they want this dispute to go on for months, I have a message for their shareholders. Your money will be going down the drain. (laughs) It will cost them (laughs) tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, um, the longer this dispute goes on. This this place apparently does a million dollars a day in profit when it's Mm. running at full steam. So, Mm. you know, that's money that could have been reinvested. They could have covered the roofing solar panels. They could have... You know, trained all the workers further. They could have put in a training centre. They could have given to charity. They could have, 
you know, invested in, in more highly efficient machines. So there's a million different ways I can think of investors and shareholders and CEOs and executives can spend company money better than just trying to lay the boot in and try and do a bit of union busting because it won't work. You won't union bust this joint. It's over 100 years of history in this place. Generations and generations of workers and... Uh, I'll tell you what, we're not going anywhere anytime soon. If you have a look at our, <laughs> come down to our picket line, we went around to hard rubbish a couple of days ago and now we've got um, a full complement of, of leather sofas and recliners that we've managed <laughs> to pick up off uh, people's front lawns. Yes. And, uh, we've got the best barbecue you've ever seen. We've got the truck set up. We, um, we're we settling in for the long haul. Yeah, I, I, like, I like to attest to the fact that it is one of the best barbecues uh, that I was down at the... Uh, uh, on on Monday there for the uh, the, the picket line, so I urged I urge everybody who is listening to uh, come down to the CB Brewery over in Abbotsford, uh, support the ETU workers, and um, yeah, have a have a bite of the uh, have a bite of their burgers and sausages. They are truly Solidarity awesome. Sausage. <laughs> exactly, Solidarity sausage. And many of our comrades are actually already been down. So Steve, what is the message you'd like to send to listeners of 3CR? How can I support you guys? Well, today it's us, tomorrow it could be you or the workplace your family's working. And um, the most important thing you can do is get down here to the brewery um, at 22 Southampton Crescent in Abbotsford. And like like um, our comrade just said, on Mondays we put on a breakfast and a lunch. Um, but any time, you're welcome to come down. And um, we've upgraded our barbecue since you've been here <laughs> too much. So, yeah, Dennis, um, we've gone upgrade. Come, come down and um, just hear the stories of these blokes and you'll, you'll see they're no different to anyone else in our society. And you'll, you'll start to pick up um, some of the vibes around this dispute and see that this is, you know, this is the next Patrick's dispute. You know, this is, this is a game changer for industrial relations in this country. And you know, we don't win it. If the community doesn't get behind this, if we are somehow um, not strong enough to, to win this dispute, there will be consequences rippling across the entire economy and the entire society, and, and we cannot afford to do that in 2016. Okay, that's great, and I uh, hope the people who are listening uh, take note of the address so that um, they can turn up anytime. You're there 24 hours, yes? No, at the moment we're here from 6am till 6pm, mm-hmm. um, Monday to Friday. It's a long it's shift. Yeah, it is, but, um, <laughs> obviously pretty hard on the families of these blokes so we thought rather than um, have them around the clock in the middle of winter yep. um, you know give them it's too cold yep. yeah well no it's more about the families you know because it's very stressful on the blokes wives mm. and, and children etc and you know we didn't want to take them away from it's bad enough that you know daddy's been thrown out in the cold hard winter in the gutter in Melbourne and if daddy's never home it's even yeah. worse you know mm. so so that's, a, that's the human side of, of all this isn't it where the families oh. suffer well when you when you lower people's wages, the standard of living goes down, Absolutely. and the opportunities mm. they can provide for their children, you know, mm. that, that, that's the reality. And how many it's not a victimless crime. It is not a victimless crime here. I'm looking at the the victims right now in front of me. Yeah, and also the fact that people would have taken out mortgages for their to you know they have to pay off all the stuff and in the bills. How are they going to pay it? You know, luckily you've got a strong union and great union support around the state and probably around the country, so that helps you. But imagine that happening to other unions where it's not as strong and doesn't have such a great history. So good luck to all of you, and we will be down there to see you guys, and people who work in Green Left Weekly will definitely be there um, to support you. You've been great um, to explaining the whole you know, the ins and outs of the dispute. And we'll touch base again, and hopefully you guys will be back at work with a decent wage. No worries. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. All the best. Bye. This is Green Left Weekly Radio, and hope you're enjoying the program so far. Now, we've got another few minutes before I go on to the next interview. 
what didn't we mention out of the... Um, now, what I want to actually touch on is a Chilcot report. Mm. Oh, yes, of course. That really hit the fan around the world. Mm-hmm. We can start it now, but we can go back to it after the interview. Yep. Yep. We, spoke, we spoke about it br- briefly last, uh, on, uh, during last week's uh, show, but I think, I think, I think it's, it's definitely worth mentioning in this uh, It's got relevance here yeah, yeah. in Australia. Absolutely. Well, uh, it has an, uh, I'll tell you, it has um, uh, two particular points I want to touch upon, especially was the effect that it's had in the UK with, yes. the, with the UK Labour Party and the effect here with, uh, with John Howard. Now, since uh, the uh, since in the UK, um, the main of, co- of course the main well, the main cul- one, of the, one of the main culprits of the Iraq War and the, and the in- invasion death of hundreds of thousands of civilians has been Tony Blair, uh, whose uh, particular bo- whose particular brand of politics is uh, getting completely decimated yes. in, the, in the UK right now yes. at the Yay. hands of <laughs> at the hands of uh, Jeremy uh, Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn uh, yes. and then uh, then finally finally taking back the Labour Party and making Labour. Labour again. So this new oh, Chilcot yes. report uh, really adds a lot of injury, a yeah. lot of ad- injury to uh, not just Tony Blair and Blairism, but also all the, all every single member of Parliament who voted for the invasion of Iraq and who voted for um, for war uh, uh, for war, which includes uh, basically well, which includes both you know all 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 of those Labour Party members who. Are challenging Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn. That's right. Exactly. It's telling of uh, exactly where politically the Labour Party has gone, hasn't it? Mm, it's gone, mm. swung so ma- so far to the right. It's unbelievable mm. to the extent we're black and de- you know just declare war on a set of lies. Yeah. But there's more f- to that because um, John Howard is being called to question on this too mm-hmm. because he joined the well, coalition. Well, John Howard is actually um, in response to actually the Shilcote report. He's on record and it's quite disgraceful to saying that he did not regret the decision to go to the Iraq war. He's Neither stands, did Blair. He, um, same with Blair. He stands by you know, his decision, you know, all those hundreds of you know, un, you know, innocent people that have been thousands. A couple of hundred thousand Iraqis were killed as a Children result of this horrible war. And yes, and, and and they should be held accountable. They they actually war criminals, to to say the least. Um, so the Tilcock report yeah. has stirred up. To me, it's, it's broader than, than just these two individuals. It's more about the system. And also, it's it's, it's got that anti-war flavour. It's, it's starting to rise again. Why do countries go to war um, without accountability? Why to go? Why go to war at all? Is my opinion, but that accountability factor has not been uh, taken into account. And um, it, it validates, you know, everything, you know, um, you know, uh, that the anti-war movement has been, you know, fighting, uh, you know, fighting against. We we knew that the, you know this whole war was a, a pack of lies, and it's great to sort of see that. Um, it's been validated, and maybe a single, you know, the start, you know, we can actually, because you know the um, the war, um, the um, the war against Iraq had some really large protests. Um, I wasn't personally at them because I wasn't involved in action back then, but I've heard there were had like tens of thousands of people protesting, and maybe, um, you know, we weren't able to stop the war, but maybe you know. This whole report, you know, validating, you know, the anti-war would, would, could set the foundation for an even stronger anti-war movement in the future. Mm, like in the anti-Vietnam War days, they've had up to 100,000, if I'm not mistaken. Or millions of people, yeah. yeah. All around the world. Mm, and mm. all uni stu- students were involved in it because it was, you know, it's their age uh, mm. friends who were being drawn into this war. Yeah. 
Um, my my uncle, um, for example, was uh, would have been sent um, to um, the Vietnam War, but um, through conscription. But he was um, he was lucky because he was happened to be born in the right year, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, by a sheer sort of twist of fate. Um, and um, the uh, in the latest Green Left Weekly, there's actually an um, whole article written by Tony Iltis, um titled you know, "Sectarian um, Terror is a Legacy of a War for Oil." Um, basically, goes over you know a lot of the things we're discussing now, but the Shulcoat Report, um, the Western collaboration um, that the US had with um, Saddam back in during the Cold War. Uh, and you know, and then it also talks discusses you know the posts, um, the effects of you know um, the U um, the Western occupation and invasion of Iraq, you know, and how it's really um, it's ultimately set the foundation for the rise of ISIS. Um, it's allowed these sort of sectarian groups to sort of you know gain more legitimacy and power in light of these sort of invasion, and um, mm. we we. We, we must be, you know, we have to be opposed, to, you know, to, to to this sort of whitewashing. And uh, also, uh, also, also, just uh, just just to add to that, just to illustrate it, illustrate and see just how bad things have gotten as a result of the evasion of, of, of Iraq War. There's recently been a news story circulating um, circulating uh, the media. I saw it on uh, on BBC the other day. Is that uh, th- it was it was a video uh, clip of uh, one of the men who helped to topple the Saddam Hussein statue in uh, in, ba- in Baghdad back in 2003. They found an interview. In t- uh, they, f- they found the one one of the men who did it, who is t- who is still alive and who says that uh, himself and others very much regret doing what they did and wish uh, and we and wish that uh, Sad- wish that Saddam was still uh, standing right there. So. If the um, if 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 ordinary people like, like himself are now actually are now preferring the regime, the dictatorial regime of uh, Saddam, Saddam Hussein to mm. what has happened now, yeah, I think I think I, I, even like that that just com- completely disseminates and d- disproves the whole even like the whole notion of uh, of if, you know a liberating a nation. From, yep. uh, from 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 an oppressive regime, as it is, uh, even even as it is, you know, a foreign a foreign invasion of of any country is an act of imperialism and and a, and a war crime. But like, you know, even, like this uh, this narrative falls apart even more, it falls apart even more uh, when when you know ordinary people say like you know we 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 had the dictatorship back. Yeah, and if the fact that they can actually say that is you know. Um, really telling of you know what what the Western invasion did to Iraq. It's completely you know completely disgraceful. Mm. Um, guess um, we're going to have an interview soon, but um, we're at, at um, eight o'clock, so I thought I would give um, a bit of a sort of um, go into the activist calendar. Excellent. Um, this. Um, I largely just walked in. We're doing the activist calendar right now. Um, so um, this Friday, um, well tonight, we have um, the red um, a red cinema um, presents UK Gold. Um, it is a fundraiser for Green Left Weekly. It'll be happening uh, at 6:30 um, p.m. with dinner from 6 p.m. at the Resistance Centre, Level Five of 407 Swanson Street. And it's um, basically it's going to be a, a screening of a documentary that actually, to my mind, actually hasn't been shown anywhere or 
Um, it's about um, it's about how Britain is um, at the, the centre of the global tax avoidance industry. It will be quite an insightful and informative film, especially in light of the Panama Papers. Um, that has been sort of like a big sort of political topic um, this year, um, and also features music by from Tom York of Radiohead. I, I think that's one of the most important parts to mention of that. <laughs> um, and on and also what? Oh. Okay, can we have the announcements? Bit later, yes, uh, Ian's got to go um, okay. to school. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we have <coughs> Ian McIntyre from the Moreland City Council. He's a resident of the Moreland City Council, and we're going to be talking about the fact that, <coughs> excuse me, the um, the council had proposed to uh, reduce or cut res- respite care for residents, uh, vulnerable residents. And last night, um, there were issues at the council meeting, and the issues brought up, and I think they won the day. But we're going to talk about the details of why the, the council proposed this thing. Good morning, Ian. Good morning. Yeah, good day. Um, yeah, look, uh, I guess the background is that um, on the 1st of June, uh, a letter was sent out to um, uh, various uh, clients, uh, from uh, who were receiving uh, age and disability home support services from from Moreland Council, um, and th- these sort of services uh, cover things uh, that basically uh, are for um, seniors and uh, people with disabilities and their carers. And I guess the kind of services uh, vary quite widely. It might be. Um, a Moreland Council worker coming in and um, helping feed someone or shower someone, but it, but it also uh, extends to um, respite, whereby um, a worker you know comes in and uh, basically looks after an elderly person or, or a disabled person, and then uh, their carers get some time to. Uh, recharge or do shopping or spend time with other family members, children and so forth. So it's, it's a very important service and, and um, Moreland uh, provide, uh, you know, like a lot of councils, their workers are unionised uh, and properly trained and, and the whole system's quite regulated. Um, so, they, you know, they provide a really quality service. So this letter came out on... Um, People received this letter on the 2nd of June, uh, no warning, no consultation, basically saying um, starting from now to the end of the year, uh, people's uh, access to these kind of support services would be phased out um, and would only be available between 7am to 7pm Monday to Friday. Now, of course, during those hours, uh, workers aren't paid... um, yeah. Basically, if, if they're helping people on the weekends or, or outside those hours, then they receive penalty rates. Mm. So, um, you know, uh, anyway, so uh, th- this letter sort of came, um, was a real shock uh, to people on the same day. Uh, the workers received something in their pigeonhole saying, we're phasing stuff out. I mean, obviously, that was going to affect a number of the workers who have basically chosen to do this kind of work. Uh, it's not, you know, the best paid work in the council, but they've chosen to do this work uh, because often it suits their hours. Often they're looking after family or other people. Um, 
and you know, so working on a weekend or working after hours. Mm. So uh, was this just a, was this just a cost cutting measure, Ian? Look, it's it's <coughs> uh, yeah. So that's the background on 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 the uh, the cut itself. I can talk later on how it was going to negatively affect people. Look, I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, those of us who were campaigning against it, I mean, you know, I can speculate about what it was about. I mean, I guess the context uh, is that uh, come to the, the um, National Disability Insurance Scheme, NDIS, is being rolled out around the country. Um, the What that will mean, uh, it's already been rolled out in some areas, but for most, most areas it's, it's yet to come. But when that scheme comes out, essentially the council will lose uh, roughly $6 million in funding. And what will happen is is that the people who are eligible for the NDIS uh, will be given a list of providers that they can choose from. Um, so the council is looking at losing... You know, they're not, they haven't lost any government funding yet. And there's a similar thing happening um, on a state level with um, aged care. So the council's looking at losing funding in the future, and I guess... This, my feeling is this was a response to that by, by kind of the management who runs this section are kind of, um, I guess whenever you're facing a cut and a change like that, you, you sort of have a couple of options. You can kind of fight it. Um, you can deal with it in a way where you remain committed to providing quality services or you can start cutting costs so that you can compete against private providers but unfortunately that means a race to the bottom mm. and uh, certainly you know parents experience and feedback from parents is that private providers uh, there's some okay ones out there but generally they're not providing as good a service as council because their workforce is casualized and poorly paid they don't have the same kind of training and obviously the focus of a private provider is, is either making money or, or, you know, at the very least breaking even. So it's not necessarily that uh, care for clients is, is the, you know, is the key thing. And, uh, you know, it's very important for elderly and disabled people to have a continuity of care where, you know, they form a relationship with a worker, they see that worker, they know they can trust them. Um, you know, certainly children with autism and other issues, you know, it can, it can be very, um, you know, upsetting to have a different person turning up every fortnight. And we were also hearing stories um, back from parents who were campaigning against uh, this cut that uh, their experience with private providers had been that um, sometimes if their children were severely disabled, the provider, you know, the worker would turn up and go too hard and actually leave. Um, so, yeah, so I think uh, that, that what this was about was about management trying to cut costs but not necessarily cutting costs because, you know, it wasn't like um, there's been any reduction in funding immediately. Uh, it's all going to happen in 2019. But I think they were figuring perhaps, you know, I could only speculate that by doing this, you know, they could start cutting costs and therefore kind of compete with private providers in the future. So, so you know, it's a bit of a difficult situation for council, but I think 
as we've seen with so many things, the the focus really has to be, um, you know, how do you respond to these cuts in a way that doesn't diminish the service that you're providing? And um, the the feedback I get is that um, the council jumped the gun, obviously, without even consulting the service uh, revi- uh, pro- um, receiving people. They didn't consult the parents or the carers of um, the population in the council who use the service. They didn't even call a meeting of them, did they? No, no, it was essentially, uh, it really felt like an ambush. People just got a letter saying, you know, your service is going, and the only option that was given in the letter was that there would be an individual meeting um, in which, you know, a, a council officer would meet with uh, people and sort of say, uh, when when do you want, you know, what, what new hours do you want? But the immediate thing was that, you know... Um, People who uh, are working, um, you know, nine to five or longer hours, um, you know, having an access, having a service that's after seven, that uh, isn't after seven p.m. and isn't available on the weekends, isn't, isn't any use to them. Um, the, these individual meetings that were called were also, um, you know, to look at other other options for funding and so forth. But as I've outlined. Um, a lot of people felt that provide, you know, service providers other than council just haven't got the quality or the commitment. Uh, beyond that, there's also a lot of parents who who um, don't and disabled and elderly people who don't have access to other services, so they fall between the cracks of what's out there, and that's why the council service uh, is so important. So, yeah, there hadn't been any consultation. I mean, you know, being um, cynical about these things, I think the idea was. You know, I, I suspect, and this is just my feeling, uh, is that it was basically about ambushing people and just going, you know, here's a fait accompli, you've got no choice, um, mm. you know. Yeah, and um, also the, the council work, workers are accountable because they are accountable to the council, the elected body as the council itself. But the other yeah, question... look, I mean, the, <coughs> the, um, look, feedback from councillors... Um, there, there was uh, only one councillor on the on the council who'd sort of been attuned to this early on. That was um, Sue Bolton uh, from Socialist Alliance, and she'd sort of picked up. Uh, you know, she, she'd been sort of consistent in in rejecting this. I think the other councillors. Uh, what happened with the original decision was, that, as so many things are starting to happen, it was kind of moved into a confidential situation where the public didn't get to hear that part of the council meeting um, you know this kind of um, financial or corporate kind of confidentiality stuff you know was used to kind of bury it yeah. and then I think you know look it's hard to say but certainly feedback from councillors was that they didn't really realise what they were voting for I mean you know they, they were kind of convinced that um, that you know, that, that there were changes were required to deal with, you know, the upcoming NDIS, but, but that these changes wouldn't really affect anyone. And mm. I guess they either didn't think it through or they didn't read it or they didn't realise. Mm. And so their feedback was very much, um, oh, we didn't realise, you know, that this would have this kind of effect. Uh, and I think that really points uh, to the importance of sort of that there was a community 
based campaign because um, without that, this just would have you know rolled through. There's there's no doubt about that. Mm. A quick question about: Did any of the unions come to your aid on this issue? Uh, yeah, yep, yep. The um, ASU was uh, was supportive. Um, obviously, you know they were they the council workers had obviously been ambushed as well. They just received a thing saying, you know, by the end of the year you won't be able to work these hours anymore. You'll essentially be losing your penalty rates and, you know, that meant um, that potentially, you know, people were going to be facing losing work because not all of them can work, um, you know, the hours that the council were proposing. So, yes, the, yeah, the union was, um, was definitely supportive. I mean, essentially what we did was... Um, a couple of uh, carers who were affected got onto uh, Sue Boltman, and then with Sue, we um, started sending letters to the council, and we had uh, a couple of meetings with, with the acting mayor and, and the directors, and we sort of kept that pressure up. Um, we launched a petition. Uh, we got some uh, story in the local paper, and then out of that, um, what was really great was some other parents started getting involved, mm. and immediately. Um, kind of council management uh look i won't go into all the details but they certainly tried to muddy the waters and 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 kind of convince councillors that you know this really wasn't going to affect anybody and that anybody who was too badly affected would be looked after um but pretty quickly because enough parents um basically sent through their stories and explained how as migrants as workers and as people who who are looking after um, children, looking after elderly parents with issues that are 24-7, seven days a week, I mean, you know, um, people with disabilities, people with ageing, uh, with issues related to ageing, it's not as if their issues only happen between 7am and 7pm Monday That's to right. Friday. That's right. So that, that message came through pretty clearly to councillors I think also the fact that it's an election year for council and so forth. Um, <laughs> Always works, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think that you know, I think I, there was sort of two levels. I think they realise a lot of them, you know, on, on a compassionate level, realised, oh gosh, you know, this really is going to have an effect. You know, it's not just about number crunching and, and mm, you know, mm. budget shifting. I think the other thing that was really crucial um, was that that we had a councillor, uh, we had somebody on the council who was, you know, as sympathetic as Sue was and who was willing to put up a motion uh, to, to turn this back because, you know, without having that kind of inside person, you know, it, it would have been quite, you know, difficult, you know, to get council um change their position. So Sue was able to put up a motion basically saying uh, that the changes should be rescinded, that, you know, all the parents should be contacted and told that they could still have access to the service. I mean, there was a few other things in there, but that's the basic thrust of it. Which is good. And by having her able to put that motion up, that then meant that the other councillors feeling that community pressure, you know, I think realised that they, they couldn't really, you know, even if maybe they... they agreed with management, you know, that they couldn't um, be seen to be, you know, doing this to parents. Mm. That's great. You had the victory, which is, um, uh, you know, um, 
a credit to community mobilisation in, in taking on this sort of bureaucratic decision? Yeah, so just briefly with that, yeah, on Wednesday night um, we presented a petition which uh, we managed to get 421 signatures in That's just good. a fortnight. Mm. And, um, and we also had a, a couple of parents who, who had just come into the campaign, so that was good. So it wasn't the, the familiar faces who'd been hassling the council for three weeks. We had a couple of new people come in and talk about their experience and um, yeah basically the most of the council councillors were all sort of really falling over themselves to sort of be the <laughs> to apologize for this yeah and uh, there was also some amendments to the motion that kind of really strengthened it um, in terms of sort of pointing out that you know the NDIS is going to have a really negative effect. So you know we'll have to keep monitoring it. For now, we have been told that um, you know the service will be restored for existing and new clients because that was a concern that we had was that um, anybody you know whose life experiences mean that they'd need you know changing life experiences mean that they'd need the service or anybody who, um, you know, moves new to the area might not be have, have access. Mm. Um, I mean, I think the other th good thing um, was that there, there is meant to be an internal review about, you know, how this happened. I mean, I'm a little cynical about, you know, exactly what might happen with that, but at least that, that's going to keep the pressure on management. And, uh, of course, the people who are involved with the campaign, uh, all of us are going to, keep a very close watch on what the council management does. I think, you know, the, the councillors passed this motion unanimously mm. and were very strong on the fact that um, the service should remain. Um, but, you know, um, I think we have to keep tabs on Absolutely. to make sure that, that mm. that's what happens. And congratulations. That's a great victory for you guys. And um, yeah. thanks for talking to us about the campaign. No problem. Cheers. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. Okay, bye. All right. Okay. Okay, so back to announcements. Yes, Sunday activist night. calendar. Um, so um, this Saturday there will be... Um, actually, first I'll mention, actually, if you're interested in um, picking up because we've mentioned uh, a lot of articles, and this is Green Left Radio. If you're interested in picking up the latest Green Left Weekly, there will be a store this Friday, um, today, this, fri every, this Friday, and happens every Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Funda Street Station. And also Saturday, there will be a Green Left Weekly store from 10 to 12 p.m. at the Coburg Mall. Um, this, uh, this Saturday. Um, and... Um, on this Saturday, there will be a rally, a sovereignty and sanctuary. First Nations Liberation Rise and War are holding a solidarity event. Essentially, it will be um, what will happen will be it will be uh, it will be a solidarity event where um, Rise, who is a refugee um, sort of group, um, who will acknowledge that you know Aboriginal sovereignty and then um, Aboriginal um, uh, Aboriginal elder Robbie Fort will be handing out you know passports to refugees, you know, indicating that they are welcome under Aboriginal law. So it'll be kind of like a nice solidarity event between those two communities and it will be happening at 1pm this Saturday at, um, at the Parliament House. Um, and also Parliament House or Street Library? Parliament, Parliament House, House I'm okay, sure it's great. But the Green Left Weekly Activist Colonist says it's at the State Library, but no, that's wrong. It's actually at the Parliament House. Okay. Um, the Indigenous, there'll be also at the same time, there'll be an indig uh, Indigenous music festival at the corner of um, Stanley and Smith Streets in Collingwood. 
Um, there'll be a fundraiser happening on Sunday. Bass, not bombs, closed pine grap. Will be well. There'll be all sorts of different music um, to raise funds for the upcoming b- protest to close the U.S. military base at Pine Gap. Um, entry is ten dollars, and it'll be Sunday, July seventeenth, four p.m. at Grumpy's, one twenty-five Smith Street. Also happening on that Sunday will be a big rally, um, mm-hmm. a, a Black Lives Matter rally. It'll be um, it'll be in support of solidarity with of with the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S., but also be uh, event that puts the attention to, you know, deaths in custody, um, um, the injustices that Indigenous Australians face. Um, and so it will be giving a message, you know, Black Lives Matter in Australia as well. And, Absolutely. Um, they'll be at 12pm at the State Library this Sunday. Um, they'll be on next Monday. There'll be a forum presented by Refugee Action Collective. Coming out of the election, it'll be titled How Can We End Offshore Detention, detention. That will be Monday, July 18th, 6:30 p.m. at the Multicultural Hub, um, 506 Elizabeth Street. On July 22nd, which would be next Friday, um, there will be a protest against Andrew Bolt. Um, uh, the Right Wing Institute of Public Affairs is hosting Andrew Bolt's um, book launch, and you know Bolt will be a present. So there will be um, a protest outside that um, at. Friday, July 22nd, 5pm at the CQ, CQ Functions, which is um, 111 Queen Street in the city. Um, there'll be a film screening of The Empire Ship is, um, is Sinking, um, which will be followed by a discussion on the alternative to imperialist globalisation. Um, it's presented by the International League of People Struggle, and it'll be happening at Friday, July, also on that Friday, fly, Friday, July 22nd, 6.30pm, Media Room 1, Shades Hall, which is at the corner of Ligon and Victoria Street in Carlton South. Um, also happening at the Shrades Hall in August, um, August 11th, there will be a forum to support the Kobani um, War School Orphan School. Um, the Kurdish community in Australia is trying to raise $400,000 to help build a school for war orphans in the city, and the school will be run on enlightened democratic principles. Um, it will feature, share, the chairperson will be Colin Long of the NTU, and it will speak, have speakers Hazwan Azia, who's the president of the Korobani Reconstruction Board, um, and it's organised by Australians from Kurdistan with entry of $5, $3, and it's at Thursday, August 11th, 6.30pm, in the old council chambers of the Shrades Hall. And um, I'll just sign up if you're interested in, um, you know, being, um, staying in touch, you know, with um, the activist calendar that we sort of, um, getting the activist calendar we sort of deliver in this radio program by email, you can phone 96398622 or email melbourne at greenleft.org.au. And just for listeners, uh, if you want to listen to any of the interviews or any part of the program, uh, we do a podcast. It should be available um, live streaming on the internet as well, and you can actually um, go straight to the 3CR yep. website and have, listen to the, the podcast. Um, it's usually uploaded after 1 p.m. Um, after this. No, no, but you can still listen to it. Yeah, you still listen yep. to it. Yep. Okay, um, we are coming to the end of the show. Um, Dennis, is there anything else you want to wrap up on? Well, actually, uh, Jacob mentioned the rally, uh, the Black Lives, Lab, Black Lives Matter rally that's been happening. It's taking place um, on Sunday, and I think it's it's quite uh, important to actually, you know, uh, to once again mention that this uh, the moment has um, has had a huge boost 
I'll, I'll tell you, I've experienced huge growth in the last, uh, in, in the last few weeks because of the uh, more recent assassinations of uh, African Americans mm. at, the, at, the, at the hands of the police. But it has also been curious to want to once again see a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, well, basically a lot of well-known or s- people or, s- or celebrities coming out and support of the moment uh, movement as well. Mm. This has probably been this, this is probably the biggest um, you know anti-racism movement or anti um, yeah an- biggest anti-racism movement since 1960s or 70s in it the is, United it's States. Big. Yep. It, uh, it was, and I, f- I feel I feel like um, you know with, with what has taken place, uh, you know, with Bernie Sanders now, yes, of his, <laughs> of his endorsement, which I kind of feel like was com- was coming anyway, but I feel like this, uh, like you know, Black Lives Matter is something that you know that uh, that ke- will keep on going, that will keep on happening regardless of who will be the president, who will be in be in the White House, and this is what we should be look- uh, looking at. This is what uh, all the Revolutionaries, militants, and um, socialists in the United States need to organize around. Um, well, just one um, note on the Bernie Sanders endorsement of Hillary Clinton. Apparently, though, this has not really come out any sort of statistics, and um, there's um, been a lot of um, reports of supporters of Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders actually turning to Jill Stein yep. of the Green Party. Yes, um, in the, the and, thousands of signing up and thousands of signing up. That would be that would be a huge, you know, even if the I don't think the, uh, even if the Greens don't actually win the president election, the fact mm-hmm. that they've strengthened um, because um, the Greens, unlike, uh, unlike um, the Democrats and um, the Republican Party are actually an anti-capitalist party, so they actually position themselves as anti-capitalist, and they're f- much further left. And and to for them to be strengthened in light of this election and in the context of you know the Occupy movement, mm-hmm. the Bernie Sanders phenomena, and the Black Lives Matter movement, it would be a huge you know win for the left if they were to gain much even more significant influence, especially if they were to, you know, put those resources that they're getting into sort of all-year-long campaign until the next election. Mm. The fact is, uh, Bernie Sanders mentioned the political revolution, and he's basically abandoned the leadership, in, in a sense, to that, that movement, from what I understand, uh, because of his endorsement of Hillary Clinton. But the fact is, the movement itself will find its own direction. And some of them are going towards the green movement. Others would find other ways. But it is strengthening the left, as you say, which is positive and mm-hmm. it's good. You know, he's done something that's never been done in, in America since the 50s and 60s, where you had more left-wing um, groups um, being quite prominent politically. Yeah. But anyway, we're coming to the end of the show, guys. Any final words? Then we'll go. Thanks for listening. <laughs> As usual. I hope you people enjoyed the show. And we should thank our guests. Um, Steve Distin, who gave a fantastic interview about the current struggle um, of the brewery worker who's been sacked in, uh, by Carlton United Brewery. Yeah, and people who um, missed out, please uh, go down to the picket line, the CUB picket line in uh, Abbotsford. Abbotsford. Uh, and support the workers there who've been sitting out in the cold, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And, of course, to Ian McIntyre, who gave us a, a roundup on what happened in Moulin City Council that tried to cut respite and support services to the, to the vulnerable in the community. So thank you for listening. Till next week. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. 
Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. I'm a shooter, I'm a 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 I'm a sh